0: This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from MarkFiori.com, The Progressive, The Young Turks, The Majority Report, The Tom Hartman Program, La Show, Counterspin, and All In with Chris Hayes. And a quick note of thanks to the folks at the Apple Repair Depot who not only replaced my faulty logic board in time for me to only miss one episode, but they also fixed those little rubber feet that come off the bottom of my computer. Nice surprise.
1: From the producers of News in a Nutshell comes One Minute Mapping A cartographic look at what's happening a world away in our own backyard First up, nation building today When we last left our friends in Iraq U.S. troops were headed home and things were looking up But today, Iraq is seeing the worst violence since the civil war sparked by the U.S. occupation. After Shiite Prime Minister al-Maliki did everything he could to squeeze out the Sunnis, sectarian fighting is back as the black banners of Sunni Islamic extremists fly once again over Anbar province. Not to be outdone, the Iraqi government is bombing from above, because that worked out so well when the United States did it. What does a brand new $20 billion police force and army buy you? Government forces firing hellfire missiles from Cessnas and fanatical Muslims overrunning Fallujah and Ramadi. But there's more. The Sunni zealots who helped kill 8,000 Iraqis this year are also at work in Syria, fighting the Iranian-backed Shiite extremists who are fighting on behalf of Assad's Alawite regime, which has led to renewed sectarian violence in Lebanon between Sunni and Shiite. Strange bedfellows are born as Iran and the USA say, My enemy's enemy is my friend in Iraq, but not in Syria. But it's not really about Iraq, Lebanon or Syria. It's a good old-fashioned proxy war between Shiite Iran and Sunni Saudi Arabia. With neighboring strongmen out of the picture and the U.S. just plain tuckered out, regional stability is in the hands of two extremist theocracies. Which is why this takes more than one minute to explain.
2: It's hard to explain. It's hard to explain. It's hard to explain. It's hard to explain.
3: Congratulations to John Kerry and to President Obama for pulling off the diplomatic breakthrough with Iran, ending a dangerous 34-year freeze in relations. The interim agreement, which requires, as you know, Iran to stop enriching its uranium in exchange for the loosening up of some sanctions, may pave the way for a comprehensive agreement in six months, or it may be renewed again and again. Either way, it marks a huge step forward and yet more proof that diplomacy works, diplomacy that was rotting on the shelves during the Bush era. And really, what were the alternatives here? To continue to impose harsh economic sanctions which penalized the 76 million people of Iran while only entrenching the most right-wing clerics and speeding them on toward building a nuclear weapon? That never made sense. Neither did the war option. Bombing Iran would have lit a match to the entire Middle East and threatened the world economy, as Iran likely would have retaliated by closing down the Straits of Hormuz, where the Persian Gulf oil flows through. So John Kerry and President Obama did the sensible and the prudent thing. They've made a decent accord with Iran. And it's a measure of the craziness of our time that doing something so sensible and so prudent is criticized as reckless. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it.
1: What's worth fighting for? What I need to just let go Common sense Teach me what it means to be alive What to make of all this time, time time? Why?
4: We have a six-month deal with Iran now. That's great news. It's a peace deal. It's not permanent, but it's at least a good start. Uh, and what they're gonna do is, uh, they're gonna enrich less uranium, and they're gonna, and this is very important, allow for nuclear weapons inspections all over Iran. Okay? And in return, in return, we're gonna really, uh, relieve them of seven billion dollars worth of sanctions. Now, if you're in the West, well, this is a great deal for you. Now, remember the people that, it's not just us. It's U.S., Britain, France, Germany, China, Russia, uh, have all agreed with Iran on this deal they're all on board for it the reason it's a great deal for us is because we wanted them to stop enriching uranium we wanted to be able to inspect their plants and before there was no sanctions or we then what we did was we did extra level of sanctions i should say and then just to get rid of some of those sanctions they gave us most of what we wanted that's a pretty good deal right but not if you're a republican no 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 we can't have peace We must always, we've always been at war with Eurasia. So we must continue to be at war with them. So, no, this is an outrageous deal. Uh, Eric Cantor is uh, livid about it, very concerned with what the president has done here. Representative Tom Reed, after a closed-door meeting of Republicans, said, the overwhelming sentiment among House Republicans is, this was an agreement that was foolish, dangerous, and that we need to do something and push forward. Now, my God, what did we give up? We just... Eased some of the sanctions we had just put on them. Big deal. It's not like we gave up anything. In return, we get to see if they're making any nuclear weapons or even advancing anywhere near a nuclear weapon. We already know they don't have nuclear weapons, but we can make sure now. Nope, 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 we didn't get enough. And of course, some Democrats are opposed to it too. Uh, Shocked to find out that uh, Chuck Schumer is opposed to it. Chuck Schumer agreeing with the right wing government of Israel as he pretends to be. Left of center here in America. Hmm. Well, that's gotta be a first. Uh here's the Hill's uh telling of the events. M- many Republicans and some Democrats have criticized the nuclear pact because it does not insist that Iran suspend all uranium enrichment. What? We did negotiations and we didn't get a hundred percent of what we want? How dare they? No, nope, tear it up. You know what the House Republicans are planning on right now? putting a bill forward that says, not only do we not agree with this peace deal, what we'd like to do is do even more sanctions on Iran. (laughs) They gave us 90% of what we wanted, so of course we should punish them by doing more sanctions. Yeah, that's a brilliant way to get to peace. But the reality is, of course, they don't want to get to peace. They can't wait to bomb Iran. The military-industrial complex will make more money. The Republicans will get more donations. The right-wing government of Israel will be happy. Chuck Schumer will be happy. Uh, the Republicans will be happy. More war, more hostility. We get an enemy. We get to bomb them. Now, the. Huge percentage of Iran is young people who actually like American culture. They might not love the current American government because we've been incredibly hostile towards them, but they like our culture. What's a great way to turn that around? By dropping bombs on their heads. But hey, you know what? If we started that war, it might start more wars and they might make even more money. These people are grotesque. You got a peace deal that's great. Listen, it, we criticize President Obama. For a hundred different things on this show. But he's actually done a pretty good job here. He got all the chemical uh, weapons out of Syria, and now he's got a pretty good peace deal for these next six months with Iran that could lead to an even better deal that's permanent. Great job. Don't listen to the nonsense Republicans and some bitter Democrats over this.
3: Circumstances from the past can't hold you in their grasp when you're on a mission. And if anybody tries to tell you otherwise, don't listen. After a while, after a while, those weary lines...
5: I don't know if people have been wa- have have seen this. I wouldn't be surprised, as I say, if you watch our YouTube channel or you watch any other political content on YouTube. Uh, though obviously, if you're watching any political content on YouTube, you should be watching Majority Report content. Uh, but uh, and also a, 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 a listener emailed uh, this video to me uh, to. Uh, get my thoughts on it and I had seen the video it's called Iran facts and what it does is it basically uh, it's very well done uh, it has a voiceover and it's um, it's animated like an illustration on a whiteboard story that you can watch in real time kind of like I think this thing I think they're called RSA animates which they do these talks by these famous by these thinkers writers whatever. And they illustrate them in real time as the talk goes on, and this illustration basically, there there isn't really much to it. I mean, there's, it basically just says, uh, you know, the hostage crisis happened. Obviously, that was a terrible thing, horrible uh, violation of, uh, you know, by the uh, the Iranian regime of Khomeini. Uh, It it says that history. It of course doesn't give you any context for that history. Not that the context justifies the act, but there's always a context like. Our 1953 CIA over, uh, backed overthrow of Mossadegh. That is a major defining moment of modern relations with Iran. We supported the Shah, who was a horrible dictator course, none of those things are mentioned. He tortured and abused people, and the revolution that brought Khomeini to power was not uh, just an uh, Islamic-led revolution. It was actually a uh, multi-party, multi-stakeholder revolution, which obviously included Khomeini, uh, but also included secularists, socialists, liberals, and pretty much everybody that wasn't directly pocketing from the Shah's regime, which we uh, supported. So leaving out all of those vital details, and then it talks about... Uh, uh, the hostage crisis, which is real, and then it just proceeds to list quotes of various Iranian leaders, including the modern <laughs> president Rouhani, saying things like, Death to America is a beautiful phrase, and
6: it, they, ain't, it, no it just, ain't no passing <laughs> phrase. It ain't no. Feels like a Hukuna Matata type. Death, <laughs> death <laughs> to America's <is> no
5: passing <laughs> phrase. So basically, what they've done is they've strung together a bunch of. Uh, statements, which sure are going to be offensive to most people, they have nothing to do with the policy that Iran has pursued, certainly the policy that Iran in the past several months has pursued, which has led to uh freezing. Uh, their enrichment levels, welcoming in inspectors, and an aggressive effort at rapprochement with the West. So of course it has nothing, has nothing to do with the offer that Katami attempted to bring uh, to Bush through Switzerland, uh, through a back channel to normalize relations. It has nothing to do, uh, with the fact that even right-wingers in iran have made comments about desiring some type of improved relations with the united states It, of course doesn't pay any attention to the fact that in iran just like every other country in the world political leaders say things that other countries find offensive to play to domestic political constituencies there's no magical escape clause that exempts iran from the laws of political gravity that apply everywhere we say things that offend people the chinese certainly say things that offend people the iranians the russians the french it really doesn't matter Everybody does it. Let's look at the policy, not the words. And this is where it becomes important because the policy that this group is calling for, and this group we should say, is backed by something called uh, the Clarion Project. Now, the Clarion Project is based in New York. Uh, And it was founded in 2006, and its stated mission is, quote, to educate people about the inherent dangers of Islamic extremism and provide a platform for moderate Muslim voices and motivate people to take active stand against those who want to deny deny others their basic human rights. Now, that sounds innocuous if you don't know anything about this field, but as everybody listens to this show and everybody who knows something about this field all know that that basically means that this group is a found, is advised by Frank Gaffney, as an example, the rabid, lunatic Ronald Reagan advisor who said that Barack Obama was trying to get Islamic symbols uh, on, on White House podiums and other things like that. This group also funded a video several years ago called Obsession, Ra- the radical Islam's war against the West, which was denounced by one rabbi, Jack Moline, as the protocols of Zion, of the learned elders of Saudi Arabia, saying the equivalent conspiracy theory that drove modern anti-Semitism through the protocols of the elders of Zion just applied to Saudi Arabia. That's this group's background. They're connected with the most far-right, extremist sections in the United States uh, and Israel policy establishments. And let's be blunt about what they want. They want war. And that's why they tell you at the end of the video to call your representative and say that they should double down on Iranian sanctions, even as Iran has made these steps to get a deal in Geneva, a deal that they've agreed to with the P5 plus 1. That's all five members of the permanent permanent members of the U.N. Security Council and Germany. Now, this is right in line with a new piece that's a great piece written for The Hill called Two Myths That Could Sink the Nuclear Deal with Iran written by Jamal Abdi. Oh, my God, we better start playing that music again. (laughs) And Ryan Costello. And they say, look, this deal, as we all know, even with a cursory attention to these issues... The fact that we even got this far is a game changer. And there are two areas that could kill this issue, uh, kill this deal, kill the prospects of a permanent deal in six months. And this is what you're going to be hearing from everybody from Bill Kristol to uh, the next time you see your right-wing uncle uh, for the next holiday gathering after Thanksgiving. And maybe you already heard this if he fancied himself a foreign policy specialist and not just a healthcare conspiracy theorist. One demand that you'll hear from the right is zero enrichment. Now, zero enrichment is something that no country is obligated to under NPT, which is the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty. And Iran will continue to maintain that it has a right to enrich. And what Iran has done under this agreement is agreed to reduce the levels of enrichment to bring them in line with global demands and make it less easy, uh, uh, the steps, less easy to weaponize this energy. But several other members of the NPT, uh, including Brazil, including Japan, the Netherlands, Argentina, they enrich uranium on their soil, and they don't have weapons programs. Now, the Iranians are not going to let go of their right to enrich. It's a matter of national pride. It's a matter of their energy strategy. And I think there's no question that Iran has obviously played a game of ambivalence about its intentions in terms of building a weapon. But fundamentally, they do have a right to enrich under NPT. They're not going to give it up. And as John Kerry said when the Bush administration was demanding zero enrichment, John Kerry, who was the senator, obviously, in 2009, said, the Bush administration's argument for no enrichment was ridiculous. According to Kerry, zero enrichment demand was, quote, a non-starter that hardened the lines between the Iran and the U.S. Quote, it was bombastic diplomacy and it was wasted energy, said Kerry. More of that bombastic diplomacy and wasted energy you're going to hear every day from the right and every day from members of Congress who will push Iran belligerents regardless of what's happening in objective reality. The second step is you're going to hear, just like at the end of that video, people calling for more sanctions. Now, this is just utterly demented, okay? Number one, as we talked about last week, we already know that sanctions are not the sole reason Iranians are here. It's a factor in the modern context, but we know the previous Iranian governments and previous Iranian leaders have already wanted to create some type of new relationship with the West and the United States in particular, that happened under Khatami that happened under previous sanctions regimes that were not as intensive as they've been recently. Now, the other reason that this latest round of, sanction, round of sanctions worked and brought Iran to the table, which the authors point out and many others have pointed out, is because it was perceived in the international community that when Obama first came to office, he tried to make some outreach to Iran and was rebuffed. It was the Iranian equivalent of what Bush did to Iran in 2003-2004. So that meant China and India and other members of the international community and the Europeans were much more willing to cooperate with aggressive and brutal sanctions. So if you apply new sanctions after the Iranians have done this, who else in the international community is going to want to go along with them and cut off their economic opportunities? It's utterly stupid. It's utterly lunatic. And secondly, obviously, what's the incentive to respond to sanctions if there's never prospect of any relief to them? That's the other obvious argument. And the real motivation here—it's the foreign policy equivalent of when people talk about Medicare and Social Security—they're never talking; they're not talking about the deficit. I mean, may, maybe you know Joe Klein or somebody like that believes this deficit story, but Paul Ryan is not talking about deficit. He's not talking about bringing in spending. He's talking about the fact that he wants to gut Medicare and Social Security. That's his goal. And the goal of Bill Kristol and those like him is war with Iran. That's the goal. That's the Clarion Funds video. They want to bomb Iran. They want military action regardless of the cost. And they're going to push and push and push and push the temperature regardless of what happens, even in the face of a big breakthrough. Now, this has nothing to do with liking Iran or approving of this government. They commit numerous human rights violations. They say terrible things. They do support some terrorist activity. But we can do business with them. That's called international relations. You do business uh, pretty much with everybody. And the Iranians uh, have a very progressive population. They have a very sophisticated leadership in many respects. They want this deal. This deal can be done. And all of the fear-mongering is either diluted cynicism or it's people who just want war. Or, uh, ladies who take Pat Robertson seriously, and men who take Pat Robertson seriously and send him emails, like the ones about the Muslim boys thing in her house. So, if you see that Iran facts video, and you hear this talk about increasing sanctions, and you hear this talk about zero enrichment, realize what that means, and call people out on it.
7: Hi, I'm Sam Seder. You may know me from my shows on Air America Radio, from filling in for Keith Olbermann on Countdown, or even, God forbid, my directing shows like Comedy Central's I'm with Busey. If not, you should really get to know me. Not personally, of course. I think we'd both find that uncomfortable. But if you're a fan of the best of the left like me, I think you'll enjoy my daily live show and podcast, The Majority Report, at majority.fm. It's a daily dose of political news, analysis, and guests like Chris Hayes, Robert Reich, Digby. Comedians like Mark Marin, Janine Garofalo, filmmakers like Morgan Spurlock and Lucy Walker. And on occasion, between my rants on raising taxes, ending wars, and decorporatizing our democracy, I can be mildly amusing. I'm unbought and unbossed daily on the Majority Report at Majority.fm.
8: George W. Bush was a war criminal. I mean, you just, you, there's no way around saying that. George W. Bush was a war criminal, but the Republicans are now doing everything they can to erase that fact from the history books and actually try to make sure that Obama shares in the blame for Bush's war crimes. Case in point Guantanamo Bay. It's an abomination, a Republican abomination. It violates both international and U.S. law and is, according to Matthew Alexander's, former senior military interrogator in Iraq, al-Qaeda's number one recruiting tool. Despite the unconstitutional horrors and atrocities that have taken place at Gitmo since it first started taking in prisoners 12 years ago, the prison doors are still open. And the horrors are continuing. Right now, as I speak, there are 155 men being detained at Gitmo. And according to a new report by the human rights group Reprieve, 33 of those men are on a hunger strike in protest of their detainment and the conditions at the prison. That includes 16 men who are being force-fed, which means they're going through unthinkable pain as military officers shove food through a feeding tube that goes into their nose and down their throats. And the worst part of all of this is that many of these men have already been cleared for release by the U.S. government. But because Gitmo's doors are still open, these men are still prisoners, and that's largely thanks to Republicans on Capitol Hill. Republicans say they're worried about closing Gitmo because they think Gitmo detainees will, re- being released, will turn around and attack America. That really has nothing to do with it. The real reason why Republicans are keeping Gitmo open is because they're still concerned about the legacy of George W. Bush. And they know that one of the biggest stains on his presidency are the atrocities and international war crimes that have been committed at Guantanamo Bay. So Republicans are trying to pass on some of that blame for Gitmo to President Obama. Obama made it clear before he was even president that he wanted to shut down Gitmo for good. He campaigned on that promise. He repeated it throughout his presidency. But Republicans are blocking the Obama administration's attempts to shutter Gitmo by passing legislation that prohibits the government from using federal dollars to close down the prisons. They'd rather prolong the torture that's taking place at Gitmo than deal any more blows to the Bush legacy or any victories to the Obama presidency. Which means that men like Shaker Amer are stuck in the worst kind of limbo. Amer is one of the 77 men currently being detained at Guantanamo who have already been cleared for release by both the Bush and Obama administrations. These men are not and never were terrorists or criminals of any sort. They committed no crimes against the United States or anybody else. They were swept up when the Bush administration was offering a $5,000 bounty for members of Al-Qaeda. And because 5000 is more than a decade's income in Afghanistan, a lot of innocent people got sold to gullible American soldiers. Shaker Amer is also one of the detainees who's being force-fed because he's on a hunger strike to protest his illegal detention I mean, he's being detained even after he's been found not guilty of everything. Amer told reprieve that, "quote, I was strapped to the bed for 24 hours, except to use the toilet. The force-feeding tube was in 24 hours a day. We would be fed for 30 to 40 minutes each time with insure cans, two cans three times a day. Some of the prisoners became zombies, as if they were already dead. I dropped weight to 130 pounds." I told the doctors, I want to die peacefully, I want no intervention, but they refused this. Meanwhile, as Mr. Amar is being force-fed, his family, back in the United Kingdom, is worried sick about him. And because he's been in prison for so long, he hasn't even met one of his children. The Amur family has reached out to British Prime Minister David Cameron, who has discussed the case directly with President Obama. There's also an ongoing police investigation in the UK into how Mr. Amur had been treated by both US and UK officials. Mr. Amur des- deserves to be sent home to his family and to live out his life free of force feedings and torture. I mean, the guy's innocent of everything. He's not a criminal. The fact that Guantanamo Bay is still open is more proof that Republicans are willing to put politics ahead of people's lives. Because of their ongoing efforts to sabotage and tarnish the Obama presidency at every chance possible, 155 men are being treated like animals and are being denied even the most basic of human rights. The Republican complicity in this kind of torture needs to stop. They need to stop passing laws making it impossible for the president to close Gitmo. At the same time, you know, President Obama is not just all guiltless in this. He needs to stand up to the Republicans. He needs to make enough noise that he shames them into letting him keep his campaign promise and do the right thing for this country by closing Guantanamo. It's time for us to close the book on one of the darkest chapters in American history.
9: Remember when we were told about the drone strikes that uh, we know who we're killing. We know what we're doing. We're targeting. They're, they're precisely. Tar- they're surgical. Well, better get another surgeon. The CIA did not always know whom it was targeting and killing in drone strikes in Pakistan over a 14-month period. This was uh, uncovered by NBC News this week, but kind of buried in the uh, other secret stuff that came out. So I'm... Uh, bringing your attention. I'm, I'm tugging your coat about it. About one of every four of those killed by drones in Pakistan between 2010 and 2011 were classified as, quote, other militants. The other militants label was used when the CIA could not determine the affiliation of those killed. Prompting questions about how the agency could conclude they were a threat to national security. I think it, it, either it was their militancy or their otherness, the uncertainty appears to arise. This is this is because we learned last year some of the uh, drone strikes are directly targeted at named and known individuals, and some are called signature strikes. We discussed this on this broadcast last year. Signature strikes are when um, just based on activity or the presence of a lot of military age males in a neighborhood they decide okay enough of that picking targets based on their on the behavior and associates of the targets a former white house official said the us sometimes executes people based on quote circumstantial evidence unquote uh when they weren't described as other militants the unknown were described as quote foreign fighters well they're foreign In some cases, U.S. officials seem unsure how many people died. Yet officials seem certain that however many people died, and whoever they were, none of them were non-combatants. Of the approximately 600 people listed as killed in the documents seen by NBC, only one is described as a a civilian, the wife or girlfriend of an al-Qaeda leader. But Micah Zenko, a former State Department policy advisor, who is now a drone expert, Did you know that you could be that when you went to school? At the Council of Foreign Relations says it was incredible to state that only one non-combatant was killed. It's just not believable, he said. Anyone who knows anything about how air power is used and deployed, civilians die. And individuals who engage in the operations know this, unquote.
10: Got a family to wait for my return. To get back home is my main concern. I'ma get back to New York and one piece more the better than sand that as hot as the city god Skylights up like fireworks, flying me. Bullets whistling over my head and remind me. President pushed that attack. Flash back to number might not make it back. listen hits the area screens. Waking up from the war of dreams. Heat up the M16. Base training. Train for torture. Take no prisoners. And I just caught you. Addicted to murder. Send more body bags. They can't identify. I'm the names at. I get a brush when I support dead bodies on the floor. Cat tease the war.
11: The recent U.S. visit of Pakistani teenager Malala Yousafzai was widely covered in the media. Yousafzai was attacked a year ago by the Taliban for her outspoken advocacy of educational equality. She survived a bullet wound to the head. She was warmly welcomed in interviews with Diane Sawyer, Christiane Amanpour, and John Stewart of The Daily Show. She was also ABC's Person of the Week. But one part of her message didn't seem to get through. During her October 11th visit to the White House, as McClatchy's Leslie Clark reported... Yousafzai told Barack Obama that his administration's drone strikes were fueling terrorism. In a statement after the meeting, the 16-year-old said, quote, I thanked President Obama for the United States' work in supporting education in Pakistan and Afghanistan and for Syrian refugees. I also expressed my concerns that drone attacks are fueling terrorism. Innocent victims are killed in these acts, and they lead to resentment among the Pakistani people if we refocus efforts on education it will make a big impact close quote the white house statement didn't mention that part nor did it seem to register in the corporate media that seemed to be following your visit and her story very closely if americans want to understand how u.s wars are experienced by those on the other side of the military attacks it's important to hear their voices but that means listening to all of what they have to say including, or especially, the parts that are hard to hear.
10: late, I've
4: Yeah, how much more can we love Malala on the Young Turks? We literally gave her our first-ever Turk of the Year award last year for outstanding courage, speaking truth to power, and then she outdoes herself after being shot in the face by the Taliban. She recovers, then goes to the White House. The president congratulates her, and while she's there, she's like, Oh, by the way, I'd like to add, you should stop doing the drone strikes in Pakistan. All those people went to the White House and didn't have the courage to speak up to the president to his face. And here she is, as usual. Teenage girl goes in and does what everybody else is afraid to do. It's awesome. Now, since she did that, what's amazing is that almost no media has asked her about it. That was kind of interesting. You might want to follow up on that. Now, give credit to uh, Nora O'Donnell, uh, CBS uh, This Morning host. She did ask about it. Uh, but first, let's scare. Uh, she also asked her about the Taliban. Listen to what are her answers is there
12: i'm not scared of the taliban at all i might be afraid of ghosts and like dragons and those things but i'm not afraid of the taliban if you kill someone it shows you are it shows that you you are afraid of that person so why should i be afraid of someone who is afraid of me already
4: oh i love her <laughs> come on how amazing is that she and but of course she's right in terms of Look, if you weren't afraid of her ideas, why would you go shoot her in the face? When you go do that, you're basically admitting defeat. You're saying, "I can't beat this tiny girl in a battle of ideas, so what I got to do is try to shut her voice through violence." It's an enormous admission of defeat. And but nonetheless, I mean, I don't know anybody, grown man, grown woman, anybody that wouldn't be scared after an assassination attempt where you got shot in the head. But here she is saying, "No, no, no, I'm not afraid of you. You should be afraid of me." <laughs> I I can't I can't get enough of her. So now on the drone issue, Nora O'Donnell finally asked about that to her credit. So let's hear about that response.
12: It is true that when there's a drone attack, those uh the, the, the terrorists are killed. It's true, but Five hundred and five thousand more people rises against it and more terrorism occur and more more bomb blasts occurs. So for that reason I think the best way to fight against terrorism is to do it through peaceful way, not through war because I believe that a war can never be ended by a war. And you said that to President Obama? Yes, of course.
4: I <laughs> can <laughs> can you tell I can't get enough of her? She's like basically she was saying of course <laughs> She's like, why wouldn't I say that to President Obama? I love that she's basically embarrassing progressives and reporters and all the people who had an opportunity to ask the president about that and didn't, and basically saying, why wouldn't you ask him about that? And look, here's a person who literally got shot in the head by the Taliban. The drone strikes claim to hit Al-Qaeda and the Taliban. And she says, Don't do it. What you're doing is also hitting innocent civilians and you're causing more terrorism, more extremism. She's absolutely right about that. The people that are against the drone strikes are not people who are like, oh my God, we shouldn't hit the Taliban. We're people who are saying you're making the Taliban and Al-Qaeda stronger, not weaker with these drone strikes that turn the whole civilian population against you. Please use some common sense. Now finally, what are her aspirations? Let's find out
11: so you want to follow in the footsteps of Benazir Bhutto
12: yes of course but Malala you know Benazir Bhutto she was assassinated it's
11: so
6: dangerous
12: the thing is that uh, the Taliban have already targeted me and I have seen that and now it's like one of my experience to see death and I think that one has to die at the end one dies there's no one who has been living for centuries so the thing is that uh, our body is going to die, but the, the mission and the campaign that we have, I want that to survive, and I want that to live forever. And for that reason, uh, I will continue my work, and I'm not afraid of death.
4: Everyone dies, but how many truly live free? She's basically hashtag bring it. She's like, look, they already shot me once, what more can they do to me? I don't know anyone who's more courageous than Malala Yousafzai. I don't know who's anyone who's more right than she is. And remember her original campaign was to make sure that people got an education, specifically women, because that's who the Taliban are trying to shut down from getting an education. I don't know uh, a campaign that I'm more in favor of. I mean, in every imaginable way, this is the pri- this is the person who stands for courage and justice.
11: we no. were misled that there were supposedly protests and then something sprang out of that and the sprang out of that and that was easily but ascertained I, that that was not the fact but, but, and the american know, people could have known that within days and, and they, they didn't know that with
6: all due respect The fact is, we had four dead Americans. Was it because of a protest, or was it because of guys out for a walk one night who decided they'd go kill some Americans? What difference at this point does it make? It is our job to figure out what happened and do everything we can to prevent it from ever happening again, Senator.
7: That was then-Secretary of State Hillary Clinton testifying before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee about the September 11, 2012 attacks on the U.S. diplomatic mission in Benghazi, Libya, that killed four Americans. That exchange centered on the motivation of the attackers. Now, the year 2013 saw multiple congressional hearings on Benghazi and an entire cottage industry of conspiracy-laden coverage, mostly but not exclusively from Fox News. The Benghazi scandal industry grew so large and self-perpetuating that unless you devoted yourself full-time to it, you could easily lose track of what the latest iteration of the scandal was. But keep in mind, the beginning of the whole thing went like this. The U.S. mission was attacked. The U.S. government initially said it was essentially a spontaneous protest inspired by an American-made anti-Muslim video. That was basically the story U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Susan Rice told when she appeared on five Sunday news shows. And Rice ultimately had to withdraw her name as a potential candidate for Secretary of State because she had, according to the right wing, gone out and lied to the American people. Never mind that she was reciting talking points that had been created by the CIA without her input, as far as we can tell. But when the right started beating its drum over Benghazi and saying it was a cover-up, the bedrock contention was this. The Obama administration claimed the attack was in response to the anti-Muslim video, but really, it was an attack by al-Qaeda. Critics said the administration didn't want us to know that America was still under threat from al-Qaeda terrorists because the president is soft on terrorism. And nothing would stop critics from saying the president misled the American people even this moment.
8: You said in the Rose Garden, the day after the attack, it was an act of terror. It was not a spontaneous demonstration. Is that what you're saying?
7: Please proceed, Governor.
8: I I, I want to make sure we get that for the record, because it took the president 14 days before he called the attack in Benghazi an act of terror. Get the transcript.
6: He did, in in fact, sir. So let me me call it an act of terror. Can you say that a little louder, Candy? He, He did call it an act of terror.
7: They couldn't take down President Obama, but the Benghazi industry grew and sprouted new accusations and theories.
3: Before Benghazi, there were plenty of calls for help that were unheeded by people at the highest levels of the State Department, people that report directly to Hillary Clinton. C-110
10: had the ability to be there, in my opinion, in four to six hours from their European theater to react.
4: They would have been there before the second attack. They would have been there before the second attack.
2: Doug Ross maintains here that Valerie Jarrett gave the orders to stand
7: down in Benghazi. I'd like to know, how did she pass out and hit her head when she pushed? How did she hit her head and get a concussion? But I have obtained 12 different versions of those talking points that shows that they were dramatically edited by the
4: administration. He started walking towards me.
3: And as he was coming closer?
4: As I got closer,
11: I just hit him with the butt of the rifle in the face. And? Oh, he went down, yeah. He dropped? Yeah, like, like a stone. And each
7: of these, unless you're a full-time expert covering this day in, day out, have to be debunked, which they were, leading to embarrassing moments from even mainstream journalists like ABC News' Jonathan Karl and CBS News' Laura Logan. But now, at the end of the year, here comes David Kirkpatrick of the New York Times in a stunning, multi-part piece, absolutely taking a sledgehammer to the central cornerstone that the entire Benghazi Cathedral of scandal is built on.
4: Months of investigation you write by the New York Times centered on extensive interviews with Libyans in Benghazi who had direct knowledge of the attack there and its context turned up no evidence that Al Qaeda or other international terrorist groups had any role in the assault. The attack was led instead
11: by fighters who had benefited directly from NATO's extensive air power and logistics support. During the uprising against Colonel Qaddafi. And contrary to claims by some members
4: of Congress, it was fueled in large part by anger at an American-made video
11: denigrating Islam. So the Al-Qaeda connection and the video, two key points. How do you know it wasn't Al-Qaeda?
3: Well, I don't think I'm out on a limb there. Uh, I think honestly, if you asked anybody in the U.S. intelligence business, they would tell you the same thing. Do you you realize
7: what he just said there? Do you realize what he just said? The the entire scandal that started, which was about this actually being al-Qaeda and then being covered up, and the idea that the spontaneous reaction to a video was a ridiculous fib, the president had concocted to cover himself from the fact that he allowed Americans to be killed, that both those things were true. The Benghazi scandal industry has ruined people's lives. It has wasted untold government resources and attention. It has led news agencies to chase themselves into ignominy. It has fed all kinds of ridiculous posturing and hysteria. It has led to confusion about the actual problems and solutions thereto. And now, finally, as we begin the new year of 2014, now, finally, it is time to say goodbye. R.I.P. Benghazi scandal. There is nothing
1: left.
0: One question I get a lot from listeners has to do with how long it takes me to make an episode of Best of the Left. Well, between all the research, show prep, and actual editing, it comes out to around 20 hours of work for each one of the 10 episodes I make every month. Obviously, this is only possible because of the listeners who chip in a few bucks each month to make it happen, so if you appreciate this show and think it provides a valuable service, then please think about becoming a member at the $10 a month level. That's only a buck a show, after all. I've always believed in giving away the show for free so everyone can hear it without restriction, so if you can afford ten bucks a month, that covers yourself and several others who maybe can't afford to pay but who need to hear the show as much as anyone. As thanks, members also receive bonus content, including extra voicemails, behind-the-scenes stories, and more of my personal musings. Thanks so much for your support.
8: This is an extraordinary topic. I think this is probably one of the one of the most important political and cultural and sociological and, f- frankly, human topics that one can discuss. I've told you before how uh, uh, Professor Jack Forbes, professor of Native American Studies at the University of California, at Davis, uh, shared with me in a lengthy interview. I flew out there to, to, to sit with him for a couple of days. Um, he wrote the book Columbus and Other Cannibals. It's an appropriate uh, discussion for Columbus Day here. Uh, about how genocide had been visited upon this continent by the by the Europeans, uh, how he talked about so many Native American societies, not all but so, but most Native American societies had reached a point where they no longer had war. instead, they resolved conflicts by games like lacrosse, or uh, counting coup was actually when the first drop of blood was drawn, that was when everything stopped and the and the goal was to Draw blood from your opponent, but not to wound them or injure them in a serious way. And uh, it was almost like a you know a game with a little bit of blood. It, it, and football, I think you could argue, is a variation on that. Oh, look at the guy got injured, you know, and and it's the kind of the same thing. But this was a way of con, uh, a method of conflict resolution as well as you know communities interacting with each other. David Swanson wrote a book called "War Is a Lie" that I think is one of the most important books that's been published in years, and he has a follow up to it, a new book out uh called no war no more the case for abolition. David, welcome to the program. Or welcome back to the program.
13: Hey, Tom, great to hear from you.
8: Thanks thanks for being with us. Um lay out your case.
13: Well, as you just began to give, there are examples throughout history and at the present time of societies living without war, or at least with much less war than ours. In fact, 96% of humanity as we speak is represented by governments that are far less militarized than the U.S. government. So we wouldn't be talking about going against some law of physics or part of human nature in proposing less militarism uh, by the United States. But I think the, the argument has to be for abolition rather than reduction. We have to do away with war so that we aren't afraid of a war from someone else, and we have to keep the military for defense, and then, as Eisenhower foresaw, it creates offensive wars. Uh, We have done away with all sorts of barbaric practices. We have virtually done away with slavery, with blood feuds, with dueling. We have put things on the list to be done away with, including nuclear weapons, including the death penalty, and are well on the way. But when it comes to war, we talk about waging better wars, civilized wars, wars without particular weapons, wars with international approval by coalitions, and so forth. We ought to be talking about abolishing war. The uh, abolition.
8: Yeah. Absolutely so very- so the question that uh, inevitably is raised, and, and um, I was with a group of of. Pretty profound and thoughtful people this weekend, um, and I, b- I brought up you and your book, and I recommended strongly to these folks that they they read your book. And um, uh, one of them, a person whose name you would immediately recognize, said, uh, "Well, what would he have done, uh, or what should we have done uh, during World War II when we learned unambiguously that Hitler was uh, gassing Jews and and." Um, uh, you know, what What was going on in the Warsaw Ghetto and, and et cetera, et cetera. I mean, should we have not gone into World war? Is, is that what you're trying to tell me? Well,
13: first of all, it's interesting, and I think revealing that, that the argument always goes, just as this one has just gone, yep. to a war three-quarters of a century ago, uh, and that you can't find a case that you can convince any significant percentage of the population justifies the war machine In the 75 years since, you have to go back to that one. And once you go back to that one and look at it closely, uh, it looks a lot less like something you want to justify going forward. Uh, I mean, this was a time in the world when nonviolent alternatives to war were much less understood. Little beginnings of them seen in... Uh, The Netherlands and in Denmark and in the streets of Berlin uh, showed the potential, but were nowhere close to being exercised. Uh, You go back to history and you look at a crisis, it's also helpful to look at how you got there. Uh, and the incredible punishment of the entire nation of Germany rather than the war makers following World War One, The West's support for the fascist uh, government's rise in Germany uh, as a preferable alternative to the communists in the Soviet Union. Disastrous policies for decades leading up to a crisis. Uh, and then the crisis treated as if uh, it, you had a choice of all-out war or nothing uh, you know, is, is not the way to look at history. Uh, mm. Needless to say, the, the Hitler's government was uh, an absolute disaster that uh, killed millions of innocent people, but the war killed tens of millions of innocent people. There was nothing worse than the war. Yeah. World War II is
8: the worst thing. 40 million people, something like that, when you consider the, the Russians, there were over 20 million Russians died in that war?
13: Fifty to seventy million people worldwide, depending on how you count it, who you right. believe, uh, the right. majority of them civilian.
8: Now, are uh, you suggesting that, for example, uh, Hitler could have been stopped by the Swiss simply saying we're no longer going to launder your money?
13: <laughs> I, I'm suggesting that it would have helped. Uh, I'm suggesting that, that there is not a new Adolf Hitler on the horizon. Uh, people like to justify Thomas Jefferson's slavery because of the age he lived in, but they never go back and justify Franklin Roosevelt's war because of the age he lived in. We live in a different age. Uh,
8: I get it. I just, you know, the penny just dropped. I mean, the, so we, we no longer justify slavery, although we justify Jefferson's slavery, or some do. Um, because that was the age he lived in. And he, he actually, Jefferson, uh, throughout his political career, the first piece of legislation he offered as a member of the House of Burgesses in Virginia was to end slavery. He tried over and over and over again to end slavery unsuccessfully and was badly punished for it a number of times. Um, the, and so you're, you're saying that we we lived through an era of slavery, we pa- set that aside. We lived through an era of warfare, we set that aside. It's, it, it is time now to set war aside.
13: I think it is. Uh, I think that uh, people imagine that you're going to need war to protect us, Uh, And and they ought to be looking at the actual case uh, in the world as it exists today in which war is endangering us. Uh, As my book documents, uh, experts within the U.S. and other governments uh, testify uh, and make clear, just as a young girl from Pakistan said to President Obama this week, your actions are making you less safe, not more safe.
8: Yeah, your drones are fueling terrorism, uh, was what Malala said to, to the president over the weekend. We're talking with David Swanson. He has a new book out. It's called War No More: The Case for Abolition. Um you can buy it at all the, the usual suspects I'm assuming and also on David's website davidswanson.org. And um David, we have just a minute left. If uh, what's the what what is the the main message that you want people to get?
13: To stop opposing dumb wars, to stop opposing bad wars, to stop opposing the most wasteful Pentagon spending more than we oppose the most efficient deadly Pentagon spending, to, talk, to start seeing the elimination of chemical weapons, the elimination of nuclear weapons, the reform uh, of this murderous practice as steps toward the obvious desirable end uh, of its total abolition. To, to understand that murder, when it becomes a grand scale, is still murder.
4: The war is over.
13: That's what he said, go back to your business. We've buried the dead and the war is over.
0: Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be.
1: We've buried the dead and the war is over.
4: We have a new champion in most disastrous war in American history. Now, look, if you go back far enough, uh, there's been some pretty bad wars. War of 1812, where we kind of had the White House get burnt down not so uh, well for Americans. But back then, we didn't have um, Gallup doing polls on approval ratings of wars. So uh, the reigning champion before the Bush years was Vietnam, of course. Uh, it had, at its lowest point, a 27% approval rating. Well, that's not very good. Uh, but uh, don't worry, Iraq wound up beating it. It had a 26% approval rating uh at its nader in 2007 but as i just told you we have a new champion afghanistan with a 17% approval rating that is unbelievable 17% approve 82% disapprove 82% right now president obama is in the middle of negotiation Uh, And those negotiations would lead to us staying longer when obviously the American people have spoken and they have said, we'd like to be Afghanistan. Going, going, gone. We don't want to be anywhere near Afghanistan. In fact, give you one more number. 57% of Americans believe that the war is going badly. Only 33% think the United States is winning. Now, what I'd love to do is I'd love to ask that 33% what in the world are you talking about? What do you mean winning? What does winning mean in Afghanistan? That's why Iraq and Afghanistan have been such a disaster. Because there was never a clear-cut path to victory, because we didn't even know what victory was. Oh, you know why, right? Because both Bush and Obama couldn't say victory is a stable democracy in Afghanistan. Because they were never going to get that. Right now, we don't have a deal. Uh, the Af- afghans have not agreed to our terms on how we would like to stay in afghanistan for about another ten years let's hope that it stays that way because american people obviously find this war to be disastrously uh... unpopular they don't want to stay longer they've made that abundantly clear president obama who promised to get us out of wars of course is not listening and doesn't care that he's presiding over the literally the most unpopular war since they started tracking Numbers on polls, on wars, I should say. So, for Christ's sake, stop negotiating with the Afghans. You know what? There was this great line in Moneyball that said, You gotta know when you hit a home run, right? There's like 50 Al Qaeda guys left in Afghanistan. They have a government. You call it a home run and you move on with your life. To drag this out for another 10 years is insanity.
10: So, uh, I was listening to your podcast the other day. It was the Republicans and people too. And there was a caller at the end. It was a black guy who was trying to wrap his head around, uh, you know, the, the whole basis of the stop and thing. You ended up disagreeing with him. But, um, I, I, I think I can elaborate a little more. Like, I, I think, you know, I kind of agree with him to full effect. Like that, uh, there is an assumption Like a, a subtle assumption A premonition That like is, is unsaid Even within like the progressive rank Like I mean like we were listening to the podcast uh, You know like When I say we I'm talking about like a couple of white friends Or whatever that I had or whatever Really progressive people And uh, like you know They're they agreeing with you Like the whole podcast Or whatever And But just like after the podcast is over you know we're having this conversation and uh neighborhoods come up and you know they i I heard one of them say something like uh oh i won't go in that neighborhood that's a bad neighborhood and and, you know i'm sitting over here with the willy wonka meme face like oh really like yeah what was the last time you even been in that neighborhood because i was there last week you know like it was I, uh, gave a buck to a child, uh, in front of an ice cream man or whatever. I got my hair cut. We were talking about, like, uh, Brady versus Peyton football game. I saw some guy help, like, this old lady cross the street. Like, I, I think the caller was correct when he was saying, like, where are all the white people when it comes to, like, the the hood or, like, the black clubs or anything like that or whatever? And, and like, if you have conversations with them, you realize that they're not going there because of these premonitions, this, these subtle assumptions that they have all the time with, you know, like, that end up being the foundation of the actual, like, racist action, or whatever. Because even as, you know, I'm hanging out with, like, these, you know, really progressive people, the, the underlying tone or whatever that they're taking back to, you know, their children or, like, you know, their friends or whatever when they're hanging out and just shooting the breeze, like, the grand consensus is in. Like, I'm not going to the, to those communities or whatever because there is an assumption that I'm going to step into Fallujah, or you know, like, so I don't want to say it, like, too many times, but it, it is the subtle assumptions, the, those premonitions that are the foundation of, you know, like, all these policies, right, Stop and frisk, or whatever they—they they arise from just thoughts like that. Like the, the the true essence, or whatever is at the end of the day. I can be a lib. I can be progressive. I can, you know what I mean, fight for my neighbor's rights, and, and you know, you do all that legislatively, and like you know, you you're you're acting with your vote. But at the end of the day, you know, you're not stepping out into into that world, or whatever, and your reasoning usually it's because dot 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 it's you know and and it's racist I mean I don't know keep keep this conversation going man I love the show this take from PG right around a quarter from you (laughs) take care man
0: I'm glad that there was a follow up to this portion of the conversation because it leads perfectly into the next message from Chris from Colorado Springs who basically lays out a very nuanced position that is almost indistinguishable from what I would have said myself.
2: Hey Jay, it's Chris from Colorado Springs. I was just calling to respond to the caller from Georgia, I think his name was Rob. Uh, he was talking about the stop and frisk and the possible hypocrisy of people being you know, against stop and frisk but then not wanting to go into neighborhoods or ghettos for people of color or things like that. And, you know, I think you did a really good job of explaining why. You know, you are personally against stop and frisk. um, And not because it's racist, but the fact that it is employed racistly you know, just adds to the fact that it's a horrible policy. But what I was thinking about is, I live in Colorado Springs which is a pretty, pretty white town. There's a large Hispanic population here but it's primarily white folks. But I also grew up in California and I was living in L.A. And, you know, I avoided the ghettos in L.A., and I avoid the ghettos here in Colorado Springs, not because the people in L.A. were primarily Hispanic and African American, but the people here in Colorado Springs are primarily white. The reason I avoid the ghettos is because it's the desperation of the circumstances that lead people, regardless of their color or their, their race, to, to, you know, commit crime. And it's not that any particular race does any more crime just because they live in a ghetto. It all depends to me on the economic circumstances. If there's drugs involved, here in Colorado, there's a lot of mess. You have a lot of strung out, poor, messed out, white people who will rob you just as quick as any strung out crackhead in LA will rob you. And I avoid both places, not because I'm afraid of the people and their color, but because I'm afraid of the desperation that grips all sorts of people and makes them do drastic things. But that's also why I support economic policies and social policies that try to end the war on drugs and get people the help that they need. And also economic policies that help uplift the poor, provide them with less desperate situations, which leads people to be less likely to compete. So for me, you know, it's it's not an issue of race. It's an issue of the desperation. And I can understand where, you know, in his experience, I have no idea what his personal experience is, how he could see What they call what uh, limousine liberals, who will go down to the soup kitchen one day, one day a year, and then talk about the ravages of poverty, but at the same time, you know, lock their doors and and avoid those people like plague. And I I can see how that could be a problem. It could be seen as hypocritical. But generally, to me, you know, crime is crime and desperation is desperation. It doesn't matter what color somebody is if they're strung out on drugs and they have a gun to my head because they want my car. I'm not really concerned about their color. I'm more concerned about the gun and the desperation in their in their life. So, anyway, I just wanted to, to throw that out there. And yeah, keep up the show and uh, take care. Bye.
6: Hi, Jay. This is Elka in uh, Fort Wayne, and um, I'm just calling to say thank you for that whole piece you did uh, at the end of the latest. Um, I don't know if it was a racism episode or a war on drugs episode or a police uh, policy episode. It seemed to be mixed with all those things, wonderfully mixed with all those things. But anyway, at the end of that episode, your discussion of the term racism.
0: The story starts when Elka from Fort Wayne, Indiana calls in and is, is sort of frustrated that I seem to have a misunderstanding of the definition of racism.
6: I do remember that whole exchange between us, and I do remember feeling incredibly frustrated and um, feeling like, uh, you know, by the end of it, I just had to let it go. Uh, You know, I I was saying to myself, this is a young white man who um, has incredibly different experiences from me, and, and we are just not going to be able to be on the same page with this term. But, um, I wanted to be able to continue listening to the show. I wanted to be able to continue um, interacting with you on issues, and um, your heart is always in the right place so i you know i i I moved past that and I continued so i I was a little surprised to um hear you bring that up as a whole discussion um but but I thank you for bringing that up again as a whole discussion that that uh, we had had a whole exchange and and it's something that you clearly thought more about than i realized i appreciate that i also appreciate the clip that you played from uh, i guess they're called radio dispatch i i have not heard that clip before listening to it you know on your show and um i don't i don't think i know who they are they're not a, a you know they're not people i listen to so i i had never heard that clip but it was interesting to hear them you know again young white people basically having this understanding that i have always had um, in my life of the term racism. And um, you know I guess you're right that it's a, uh, you know sort of a battle that has been lost in terms of of that word and how it has changed. And it's not surprising that that battle has been lost because you know dominant culture is always going to win those kinds of battles, unfortunately. And that word is now watered down, and um, that word now means something different than what it um, you know means to the rest of us. I guess that's something I'll have to accept, but I, I really appreciate people understanding that the way racism works isn't just me not liking you because of your race. It's far, far, far deeper and far more powerful and um, has far more negative effects than just that. So, okay, that's all I have to say. I don't want to go on too long, but um, thank you very much, Jay. Still enjoying the shows, and... Um, Still supporting you. Keep up the
0: good work. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. Uh, just first of all, real quick, I'm ha- very happy to have my computer back. It was out for repairs. I missed a show because of that. Uh, it is back. Everything seems to be in working order. There's not much more to say than that. I just want to mention it in case you missed the announcement, explaining why there was a rerun before and you were confused or frustrated or whatever. So thanks to everyone for their patience. Uh, Secondly, thanks, of course, to everyone who's uh, continued donating to my polar bear plunge Uh, just a week and a day from today. I will be jumping into the Potomac River regardless of the temperature in an attempt to raise fifteen hundred dollars to go towards the Chesapeake Climate Action Network this is an organization that I used to work for so I know that you know they're I know they're good from firsthand experience but they've also been called the most effective local climate organizing group in the country by 350.orgs Bill McKibben so definitely a, a, a cause worth supporting and I want to continue to thank those who have uh, already donated Kathleen Knight Christopher Verano Cliff Carson and anonymous all chipped in bringing the grand total up to only 22% of our goal so far. So I know I know that people wait until the last minute, but I'm telling you this is the last minute. Uh, the event is in a week and I really want to uh, reach that goal by then. So if you're at all interested, you can find out about the event by going to keepwintercold.org and then you can search for my name as one of the plungers. Uh, you just put in J and it'll come up. Otherwise, you can go to bestofleft.com and there's a link to the Polar Bear Plunge, it goes right to my fundraising page. You can't possibly miss it. It's there at the top. Uh, so thanks to everyone who's donated. Thanks to everyone who is going to donate. And, of course, uh, you'll all be thanked on the show once those donations actually come in. So that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash bestofleft. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway at outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors of the show from bestoftheleft.com.
10: And it's a crying shame how we get so trained. We can't see past all the sad stories and wonder what we're missing. We can't see past.